HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Magnifico Radio, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. I'm your host, Kate Black, and if you're listening live on the Heritage Radio Network, that means it's Monday and it's one o'clock here in Brooklyn. Welcome. Each week, I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders in sustainability to discuss their paths and motivation. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com, and that's Magnifico.com, and my book, also called Magnifico, Your Head-to-Toe Guide to Ethical Fashion and Non-Toxic Beauty. When people think of cruelty-free or vegan fashion, most think of Stella McCartney. And while she may have been the first, she's certainly not the only. Today's guest is Francisca Pineda. She worked for over a decade as a design director for a large accessories company, but then had a pivotal experience that led her to launch Bava, a fashion-forward vegan and sustainably-minded footwear line in the spring of 2013. Hello, Francisca. Hi, Kate. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So let's start with, you grew up in, in Costa Rica. What made you want to be a designer? Um, what made me want to be a designer? Basically, as a child, my mother always sewed our clothing. So I would go with her to the fabric shops. And um, I was very involved in picking out the patterns that we would buy for her to sew um, the garments. And I would take all the fabric and the trimmings and she said I was apparently really picky she said she always knew I was going to be a fashion designer which is kind of um, unheard of growing up as a five-year-old in Costa Rica that doesn't even have barely much of a fashion industry but she said I always that's what she always says now she said I always knew you were going to be a fashion designer and I did draw sketches but I was more than anything she said I was very clear about what I wanted and the way I wanted it to be made. So I guess that was the beginning, and I did start learning sewing from her and 
And I pretty much had my heart set on going to Parsons, and that's where I did end up going for fashion. But, yeah, I guess that's where it all started. It's so fun to hear people who've been, like, motivated and driven since they were since they were young. And so you got a job. You got your dream job. Can you, can you talk about what you were doing and then how, how all of a sudden you had this kind of crisis of, of well, kind of crisis of experience? Okay. Yes. Basically, I, it's kind of like my life went exactly as I had planned, which is, my plan was to, you know, work hard in high school. Like, even though I was going to an art school, I worked really hard to get scholarships and get good grades and get into Parsons. And when I got there, I worked really hard and I made sure that um, I graduated and I had gotten a good job that I wanted. And um, I had worked my way up. And finally, I was. I started out in apparel, and then. Halfway through my career, I realized I liked accessories much more. And finally, I was at the height of my career overseeing all the accessories for men's and women's in this big company. It was a it was a job I really enjoyed. I got to do everything I wanted, got to be creative, a lot of independence. And at the age of 32, um, I started realizing that I was starting to get headaches. It happened quite quickly, actually, after working in the industry for many years, but something inside my body just started triggering a kind of allergic reaction where, and it all started from um, this one summer that we had hundreds and hundreds of leather samples in the room, and it started with headaches, and then it led to seizures, and I went to doctors, and, and basically they just said, we don't really know what this is, you just probably can't work there. And I was devastated because I really liked my job. I liked what I did. I had a, an apartment in Williamsburg, which is what I also always wanted. So my life was exactly how I wanted it. And it seemed like overnight um, everything was basically kind of taken away. Um, at the same time, I was I was eating organic food, taking care of my you know, body, going to yoga. I would go to Jiva Mukti Yoga, doing my meditation and all of this, but I had never connected my job or what I did to make a living with, you know, who I was as a person or any type of spirituality or ethics because that's always what you do to make a living is separate, and that's, you know, separate. That's what you have to do to survive. Well, yeah, because your job is your job, (laughs) right? Your job is your job and that's where you go and that's where you work. And then, and your life is your life. So I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people kind of have that expectation or just that, that thought. Yeah. For me, it was like, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just never connected so many little things about my job and, um, you know, um, part of my job was to, you know, haggle the factories and try to get the best price and say, oh, what can you do? We got to lower this, whatever, 10 cents. It didn't, it was just completely disconnected from my life after work where I would go to Whole Foods, stock up on kombucha, whatever. And, um, you know, it, could, um, it just, I had to do what I had to do to make my money. And I had no problem with it until I started learning about all these things. Um, about the toxins 
um, that actually affected my health. So I had to be hit on the head pretty hard to have this realization and to get into ethical fashion. There are a lot of people that are naturally finding out about this and, you know, from all the information that's out there, there's a lot more information now than there was back then. Um, but but, but yeah, I think- that's how it happened for me. And once I started learning more and I started taking classes, that was the first year that FIT started doing the sustainable ethical fashion certificate program. So after learning, I just realized that I just could never go back and I didn't want to make money doing anything that hurt other people. I think, listen, I think lots of people come to this path from different directions. So some people are kind of, it's how they were raised. And then some people like you just kind of have this epiphany. And I, when you were the first person that I ever met, because one of the reasons why I had started Magnifico.com is because I had this feeling that, that this industry was harmful to people and planet. And, and really always, I really advocate mostly for people. I'm kind of people driven. And you were the very first person that I met who said, yes, I absolutely got sick from, you know, from my work and from being around the samples that I was creating. And, and so it just, it just kind of reaffirmed for me that I was on the right path. So how did, once you took your courses at FIT, how did your path change? Like, how did you, how did you not leave fashion? How did you kind of, I don't know, how did you change your life? Well, um, I think that's one good thing about me is that once I see that something's not right, I'm pretty quick to make changes. And I was pretty quick to realize that um, I had to leave. I actually left uh, Brooklyn and Williamsburg because I needed to focus on my health and I needed fresh air and I needed to rethink things. And so that's when I started something called the Ethical Fashion Academy, and I think that's where I probably first met you. It's, I used to do these free events in Brooklyn because I just felt that, you know how, uh, I just felt that people needed to know about this, so I needed to do these free events and just get all, let everyone know how toxic all this stuff is with no um, other strategy behind. It was just, you know, letting people know, and that's how I started getting involved in ethical fashion and meeting people like you. And... I don't have as much time to do those types of things anymore, but that's how I started and got to meet everyone. Um, And then eventually I found that um, one of my friends that I had met in the industry also had the same feelings and also wanted to do something that was non-leather and more ethical. So we started uh, Bava together um, and making footwear in India. So that's how I then started working on my own brand um, because that, I mean, at the time, I mean, there still aren't many job opportunities for designers within ethical fashion. So I think the um, alternative is a lot of times if you want to do something better, you have to kind of start it yourself or do it yourself. So um, that's how I started with that. And that was in 2013? Yes. And I think I had started doing like background background work before that, but I think that was the first season that we had, you know, something to sell. And it's so fun for everybody who's watched your brand grow because you really, um, in true entrepreneurial style, you continue to pivot. So you were making for a while in India, and then are you still making in India? Yes, I do actually. Yes, because. Um, we make some more casual flat sandal styles in India, but I decided 
I knew I needed something a little bit more higher end because in the winter people still need nice leather looking boots so that's what made me go into Spain and I had a friend that was there so she helped me find factories and I did start also working in Spain and I still work both with India and Spain back and forth um, depending on the style and who I think can manufacture it better. It's amazing. And that and that's another example. So you started off with casual wear and then you kind of moved into this higher end. You started in India, you also added Spain. Like it's almost like we're watching a little child grow because the company keeps evolving and and growing. And you've made some great partnerships and and to be honest, you can your boots are so recognizable in New York. Almost anybody any vegan of fashion sense and sensibility is always wearing one of your boots because it's kind of really one of the only ones that are available in New York. So can you talk about like what that means from a business point of view? Like how, how do you, how did you balance your bestsellers and your editorial pieces and like, how are you figuring all of this out? I think with, with design, it always has to start with your gut. I mean, for me, it's very much, it has to be always something that I would wear or that I would buy, that I would pay that amount of money for it. So for me, it has to be comfortable. There are a lot of um, high fashion brands and, you know, Stella McCartney will do a lot of great pumps and things with foreign shields, but I just wouldn't wear anything that... Um, I mean, sometimes some of her heels are a little too high, some of the designer heels. So for me, they'll be like a little lower just so that I really can get a lot of use out of them. I think that when your customer is someone that's interested in ethics as well as fashion, they tend to be also, they want something beautiful, but at the same time, they want to be able to wear it and they don't want to just, you know, spend their money on a pair of shoes that they're going to just wear one night. They really want to wear them, so I try to make them as comfortable as possible, and that's probably the main thing that has gotten me consistent and loyal customers that keep coming back. So I would say like 50% of our customers keep coming back. Um, so, and I think it's probably the comfort, and then I do um, spend just as much as any designer brand on materials because... They just have to laugh and really look good. So, well, that's the thing I, I like save to save money in other things. <laughs> save money in other things like photo shoots or camp. Like, like I spend as much as possible on the product and as little as possible on the marketing and the you know all the other. That's, that the customer doesn't care about in the end. That's true. And that's probably why you're a word of mouth sensation because, you know, every vegan knows your brand because the vegans kind of share it. But the I'm not a vegan, but I'm a huge fan of your brand because it's, yeah, durable, comfortable. And then you have versatility in there. Like, I just, I love this kind of three-in-one boot because um, it's so unique. Like, did you, I feel like I saw it when I was younger. I feel like I... I might have even had a pair when I was in my teens. Is this is this something that you had seen before, or is this something that you kind of came up with your own take on? Basically, this um, this is definitely not the the idea of an upper that detaches has been around in footwear and in, in equestrian footwear and in all different. Isn't oh, there that, isn't that brand I think it, had like a plastic rain boot version? Yes, yes, so yes. So a lot of people have done it. A lot of people have done it over time. I had never seen one done with an over-the-knee boot. 
And when I was in Spain, my friend showed me. She said, this is uh, a booth that I have that I love. And I said, oh, interesting. And then I said to myself, what if I do three in one to do the basic ankle booty and the knee boot and the over knee? So I don't think anyone's ever sold a three-piece set with all of these options. But um, I figured I'll just try it. And we we still continue it. We'll definitely be doing it again. And so I'll always trying to think of new colors and new fabrications because people just keep still wanting to wear it. It's just a very timeless heel and it's a solid wood heel and it happens to be very sturdy and comfortable. Um, so we're, we'll keep going with that. It's our editor boot and it's probably definitely our biggest and best seller. It took a long time to develop to get the fit of the calf just right. So I think that's one thing that uh, we did differently. We made it really fitted, and customers can tell me their calf size, and we ship them out the upper that fits their calf. So that's something that customers really love because some women have really narrow calves or a little bit more muscular calves, and they're able to get the right fit for their calf, which is another big selling point that I think people were, are surprised about, and then when they get them, they're they're really happy about that. Well, of course, because that's, that's also what makes it wearable and durable and everything else. Amazing. Okay, we need to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio and I'm your host Kate Black and today I'm sitting with Francisca Pineda, the founder, co-founder of Bava Studio. So Francisca, it's Earth Week. What do you think, because you've had such kind of a storied career and you really love fashion, what, what do you think we're doing right in the world of fashion? In the world of fashion, I am, every day I have to say I am surprised by how much mention I see about ethical fashion and sustainability. I forget what magazine. It was just a mainstream magazine that I just picked up. I think it was actually W Magazine or something. And it seems like everyone is writing about it, whereas in the past it was something everyone did not want to talk about. So at least, at the very least, the conversation is starting. And the, you know, the business of fashion blog that's pretty you know, well-read in the fashion industry. 
they are really getting behind it. And it's really exciting to see that it's becoming a conversation that almost now is becoming mainstream. So that's step one. That's the biggest thing I think I've seen so far in the last few years. And I, I agree. that companies are really trying to embrace this, right? Yeah, I agree. Especially the mainstream. I mean, I wish we were still back in the days where, you know, Vogue would do a green issue or, you know, like we would have some, some just more press. I feel like, I feel like brands like you aren't getting enough mainstream press, but there is definitely more and more. And then what, what do you think is still lacking? Like, what are you surprised about? from you know from the time you were sick or from the time that you launched Bava what do you think what are you kind of shocked that we haven't conquered yet um to be honest I am shocked that in general the U.S. and some of the policies and obviously the our latest uh, president and some of the decisions that are being made there it's pretty shocking when I feel that the rest of the world is really moving forward, even, you know, in the Middle East, Dubai has a goal to be one of the top 10 most sustainable cities. It seems, I feel like it's something the rest of the world is striving for. And on a federal level, the United States is not. At that, I would have never guessed um, would be, you know, what would be happening now in 2017. Well, especially because there's been so much rhetoric in our industry about how fashion is so polluting. I mean, is it second? Is it third? But but regardless of where it sits, it's definitely third intensity of trade. And, and it is a very polluting industry. So you're right to have this kind of rollback of EPA or environmental standards in, in one country is shocking. But then again, not a lot of the stuff that we wear and buy in the U.S. is produced here, right? 98% of apparel and shoes are imported. So I'm not sure that that necessarily affects our industry. But how do you feel like when you go to India or when you go and see your factories in Spain, do you see that the factories are making, like, do you see it kind of cleaning up in your travels? Well, I think um, in Europe and especially in Spain, I think they do have a lot of I mean, they have a lot more restrictions with their reach guidelines. So I just know in general, if I buy, a, you know, a textile from Italy or from Spain, it has gone through, you know, a totally different set of standards than other fabric. And from from India, I would have to say that's places like India and what I read about Bangladesh. Those are, that's where all the the victims are and people are just so poor that they just do anything to have to make a living and they're the victims but I feel that I don't know it's very complicated but I as far as greening up the factories I don't see that I haven't seen examples of that I happen to work with a factory that I'm very close with the owner there and I know her um, you know, I know her very well, so I know about the working conditions there and how things are done there, and I'm in charge of all the materials and the sourcing. But um, the majority of factories in India, um, I don't know, I can't really say that overall there's, there's definitely a move towards artisan and artisan and handmade, and I think India always has had a lot of respect for that and for their craft. But... Um, Moving towards an environmental way of manufacturing in India, I haven't really seen 
um, that much there. Although I have seen some um, inspiring places like Aura Herbal, which is where I source my organic cotton lining for my shoes made in India. And my friend has a nonprofit called Work Shelter. And so we're having her make our shoe bags out of organic cotton. And she takes women out of dangerous situations and trains them to make the bags. So at the same time, there are a lot of inspiring projects here and there. But I feel that they're more independent. Um, you know, they're independent projects. Yeah. And how do you feel about consumers? Like, do you think that, you know, shows like this and, and brands like you, like, do you think we're, we're kind of making an impact? Do you think consumers are changing? I definitely think so. And I think um, even if only, let's say, you know, even if only five people here right now talking and only one person really makes a difference and says, I'm going to um, start buying better or not next time I'm not going to buy this pair of shoes from Zara, then I think um, that's fine with me. I think sometimes we're a little obsessed these days with social media about quantity and numbers and how many, you know, how many thousands of people are we getting across to. But I think, you know, we just keep doing what we're doing and you keep spreading the information. I think you'd be surprised how it is... um, you never know if it'll affect the right person who is then going to affect the next person. I, I don't know. For me, it's about connecting, and we need to we need to just keep doing what we feel we need to keep doing because you never know what, you know, what or who you are going to inspire in that moment. That's true. So we to, That's we true. We have to keep going. I don't think it can be, <laughs> I don't know. It, it'll take time. It, all these things, all these things take time. But I am very optimistic about the younger, young generation, and they care a lot. And I'm my, optimistic too. You I know, think. my nieces, they talk about it, and they're like, "Oh, and they're vegan too!" Like, you know, you know, they're excited and they're happy about the fact that things are cruelty free or made better. So they understand. I think it's amazing. And let's talk. So what's coming up for you for spring? Because I love also what you do. Um, often when you come out with a new style or you come out um, with a new season, you do pre-sales so you, that you can mitigate the waste in, in your production line. You can kind of gauge how much interest there are. You can produce just as many as, as people want, um, which is such an amazing kind of way to do business. And I think that you're one of the first that I know who keeps doing it successfully time after time. And so do your customers appreciate that? Are they kind of recognizing that that's a, that's a great way to support their favorite brand and, you know, avoid production waste? Yes. I think pre-orders are really helpful because exactly what you said is, um, you know, I can't predict the future, so I can only, you know, design what I think looks great and get samples. I can get local feedback from friends and family, but, you never know until people really, you know, decide to purchase something. So pre-orders are a good way to gauge if something is going to be well-received or not so that you don't produce it because there's no bigger waste than no matter what, we're producing something. So um, there's no bigger waste than producing something, even if it's organic or biodegradable or as great as it can be, and having no one buy it. So... I almost feel that I have like a little bit of an under uh, a policy of underproducing because I like to have like at the end we were saying like for the editor boots like 
Um, I had for last season, we had like about one, no more than two sizes left for each size, two styles left for each size. And that's how I like to keep it. I don't believe in a whole big stock room at the end of the season of stuff that has to go on waste. And I think, you know, the, the eco fashion books are saying, right, I think it doesn't um, so much like 30% of the, what's produced gets thrown out or even more, especially in fast fashion. So um, that's, that's a big issue. And I'd rather produce less and, you know, maybe I undersold a few and a few customers didn't get what they wanted, but then the next season they'll remember and have to pre-order it. <laughs> that's so. amazing. And how do people get in, how do people get on this list and how do they know when pre-orders are coming? Do you, do you social or do you have a mailing list? Yes, I have a mailing list on the website. So whenever it goes, anyone goes to babastudio.com, you immediately get a pop-up saying to sign up for my email list and you get a coupon for $25 off and I send out emails. I don't have, I don't send out that many emails like many other brands. Um, it's really just when we have something new coming up or when we have um, a pre-order sale and um, we'll try to do like two or three, a few new styles every season. So, and then of course we keep carrying over everything that people still want like the editor boots will keep coming and whatever other styles we keep getting asked for. That's we, ma- we produce in small quantities, so we have the flexibility to do that. Yeah, that's great. And any plans? Are you going to get into men's or any babies or any other kind of new product lines coming up? Not men's right now, even though a lot of people ask. I think there are good options because there is the brand um, Brave Gentleman. I think he makes really beautiful men's shoes. So I feel that unless there's something that I feel is needed, I don't really, you know, feel the need to add more to the world. I did, we did do a new pump this season called the Esperanza Ankle Strap because I was designing it for myself for my wedding. So, and I wanted something that I knew that that had the same cushioning and support that my shoes have and that I could wear all night long. So it's also really personal for me. It's what I need in my life. And that's what I, what I also add and like, and I think my customers are kind of, they don't want something that's too trendy, but that's going to go out of style too quickly, but they do like a little something different in their design that, um, it just looks a little bit unique and not so mainstream. I love it. Thank you so much, Francisca Pineda of Bava, and that's B-H-A-V-A for everybody who's listening, bavastudio.com. Thank you to the Heritage Radio Network and especially Magnifico radio engineer David Tadashore. Thank you to Metro Jesus for the music and to our new researcher, Louisa Durkin. You can find and subscribe to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, kindly give us a rating. It helps us rank higher amongst conventional fashion podcasts and to push these conversations forward. To learn more about vegan shoes and fashion, plus hundreds of other stories, visit Magnifico.com, sign up for our newsletter, and if you have any feedback, questions, want to be a sponsor, recommend a guest, please email me at radio at Magnifico.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.